We're going to get through the whole chapter. And uh, our pace through the book of Joshua is going to accelerate significantly from this point forward. Last week was a first ever. We did two chapters, never been done in the history of reality ever. And uh, wow, God can do exceeding abundantly beyond anything that we ever thought, according to the power that mightily works within us. So if you're open to Joshua 14, let's pray. Jesus, we want you to continue to be exalted in our time here together. We've come to church for you. Lord, if there be any other motive in our hearts, we ask that you'd please have mercy on us, that you'd correct us and forgive us. But you're the reason, Jesus. We're here to exalt you, to worship you, and to know you more. And we ask that now you'd be exalted in the teaching and the preaching of your word, and that you would do a deep and wonderful work in our lives, a work of refining, Lord. We just confess before one another and before you we're a messed up people. We're not going to pretend like we're not. We're not going to put on our Sunday best, Lord. We're just a mess. And so we're just asking that you would come and do a work, Lord. You'd purge things out of our hearts that ought not to be there. You'd build things in that you want there. You'd do a work of refining and purifying and strengthening and, and set right whatever has gone wrong. And so speak to us. Word of God, speak. Living God, speak into our lives through your word. And God, I'm begging you that you would please anoint me to communicate. I cannot do this in and of myself, in and of myself, Lord. It's going to be horrific. We ask together that you would please anoint me to communicate because we don't want to hear the wisdom of man or the opinions or the stories of a man. We want the very living, active, inerrant, authoritative, awesome word of God. So Holy Spirit, you come and instruct us, please. And Jesus, you be glorified. And Father, bless your children now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Joshua chapter 14. We're just going to read through the first five verses. And there's a few details here. They're not real big things. Some of them we've talked about. Some of the other details we'll talk about in the weeks to come. So we're just going to hit a couple little basic things in the first five verses. But then we're going to narrow in on the latter part of the chapter. And one man in particular, we're going to get a little biographical sketch of his life and be very encouraged and challenged by it. But let's start reading in verse 1 of Joshua 14. Now these are the territories which the sons of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel apportioned to them for an inheritance by the lot of their inheritance as the Lord commanded through Moses for the nine tribes and the half tribe. For Moses had given the inheritance of the two tribes and the half tribe beyond the Jordan, but he did not give an inheritance to the Levites among them. For the sons of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and they did not get a port, give, give excuse me, a portion to the Levites in their land, except cities to live in with their pasture lands for their livestock and for their property. Thus the sons of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they divided the land. Now you'll notice that it says in verse 1, now these are the territories which the sons of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan. Recall from last week that I shared with you that chapters 13 through 21 make up the division of the land to the 12 tribes of Israel. But two and a half tribes got their portion of the land on the east side of the Jordan River, and we spoke about that last week. Now, in chapter 14, we get to the division of the land of Canaan proper. And it will continue all the way almost to the end of the book, and that's your introductory statement there in verse 1. 
Now, according to verse 1, Joshua didn't have to do all this work himself. And that's good news. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of land. Joshua has undergone a job shift from military commander to administrator of sorts in dividing the land among the 12 tribes, but he didn't have to do it alone. There was Eleazar the priest who would, of course, help him. And then there were other various heads of households from Israel, we're told in verse 1. Now, we're told in verse 2 the method by which they divided up land, and that was the casting of lots a lottery of sorts. Now, it would seem random to you and I, and usually our approach to that is. But in Proverbs 16, verse 33, it says that man casts the lots, but the Lord controls the outcome. Okay, so there is a way in which in the Old Testament, God worked with his people through the casting of lots. We see it in the New Testament as well with the appointing of Matthias as one of the disciples in Acts chapter 1. We're going to deal with that more extensively, casting of lots, and how it may or may not relate to our life when we get to chapter 18. But basically, it was a lottery system that was submitted to the sovereignty of God for the dividing up of the land among the 12 tribes. Now, it mentions here once again that the Levites did not get an allotment of land. Why? They were the servants of the Lord, and they were the ministers of God to the people, and so their portion was the Lord himself. Amen? And that's the best portion. Who needs land and stuff when you got Jesus as your portion? And so the Levites, their portion was the Lord, but they were given some cities because they needed to live somewhere, and they were giving some grazing lands for their flocks. And then in verse 4, we have an explanation for the half-tribe of Manasseh and the half-tribe of Ephraim. We haven't talked too much about Ephraim yet in our study of Joshua, but we talked a lot about Manasseh. And you may have been wondering the whole time, why are they called a half-tribe? Was there a division that took place? Did uh, half of the tribe stay on the east side, but then the rest of the, the family of Manasseh went to the other side? No, here's the deal. As you know, there are 12 tribes of Israel. And those 12 tribes are named after the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel by God. And the 12 sons and subsequently the names of the tribes are Asher, Nephtali, Zebulun, Issachar, Gad, Reuben, Benjamin, Dan, Judah, Simeon, Levi, and Joseph. But the tribe of Joseph was divided into two sub-tribes, the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. That's why it's called the half-tribe of Manasseh and the half-tribe of Ephraim, and the two together make up one tribe as a whole, the tribe of Joseph. So that's where we get that phraseology, the half-tribe of Manasseh, and we talked about them extensively, the fact that they settled on the wrong side of God's promises and stayed on the east side of the Jordan and never entered into the Canaan to possess the land. So now, in chapter 14, the dividing of the land is beginning, and we're going to get into all sorts of details in the chapters to come. But now we have this little parenthetical discourse, this wonderful little biography woven into the tapestry of the allotment of the land of Canaan to the Israelites, the story of the man named Caleb, one of the greatest men by my assessment in all of Scripture, but very infrequently mentioned, not much written on him, but a great story nonetheless. Let's see what we can get out of it. Let's start reading in verse 6. Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal. Okay? The sons of Judah, one of the tribes, they're back at Gilgal, which is the headquarters of, 
of uh, Joshua and the armies of Israel in the land of Canaan. And then Caleb, it says, who was from the tribe of Judah. Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, that is to Joshua, you know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. He was reminding him here of something that happened 45 years ago, something Moses spoke to the two of them. He says in verse 7, Caleb does, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord, my God, fully. Now, the allotment of the lands is beginning. The administrative process of dividing them up by the casting of lots is starting. And Caleb comes to Joshua and says, Joshua, I want to remind you of a conversation we once had with Moses. Moses has been dead now for a little over seven years. But you and I had a conversation with him way in the southern portion of the land of Canaan, a place called Kadesh Barnea, 45 years ago. And there were some events that unfolded during that time and a promise that was made to be my bo me by Moses that I want to remind you of now. Let's see that story unfold as you turn to Numbers 13 and 14. Book of Numbers, keep your fingers in Joshua, we'll be right back, but go to Numbers 13. Now several weeks ago we talked about Numbers 13 and 14. In great detail, we read a lot of the verses from these chapters, so we're just going to read a few verses, but I'll just recap the story for you before we do read verses. When we get to Numbers 13 and 14, Israel has already come out of the land of Egypt, and they've been traveling for about a year. And then they come to a point of entry at the southern portion of the land of Canaan. This is the place where they were supposed to take possession of Canaan. This is the place where they were supposed to enter in. This is the moment where God was going to give them the land. They should have gone in by faith and entered at this time, which is 45 years from Joshua chapter 14. And we have on the map for you where Kadesh Barnea is. It's at the lower portion there of the land of Canaan. That black outline are the modern borders of Israel. So they come to that area, and the Lord commands Moses to send 12 spies into Canaan. One would be elected from each of the 12 tribes, and they together would go in to spy out the land of Canaan for 40 days. And they go in, and they're in there for 40 days, and they travel all the land. And when they come back out, they say to the whole congregation of Israel, in verse 27 in Numbers 13, they say, surely the land does flow with milk and honey. In other words, they report, hey guys, God brought us out of Egypt just like he said he would. He's brought us here to the border of the land of Canaan, the promised land that he wants us to enter into. We've gone in and we've surveyed, we've viewed, we've looked at God's promises for ourselves, and it's just like God said it would be. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. God has been right on to us so far. But then there comes a division in the opinion as to what should be done next. There develops amongst the spies a majority report and a minority report. The majority made up of 10 spies who said, there are giants in the land and they're too big for us. We're intimidated by them, we're afraid from them. We don't think we could handle it and so we don't think we should go in. 
And a rational person would be saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God brought us out of Egypt, performed all those 10 plagues, did those miraculous, part of the Red Sea, brought us to this place, promised us that the land would be thus and so, and you went in and saw that it was thus and so. You've, caught us, you've, you've allowed us to taste of the fruit of the land, and now you're saying because there's big guys, we shouldn't go in? Yeah, that's what we're saying. They're super gnarly. It's really scary. We don't think we should go in. That was a majority report. And then there was a minority report that was issued by just two men who stood against the 10. And that was Joshua and Caleb, the center of our sermon today. And Caleb, in chapter 13, verse 30, takes his stand and begins to speak. Verse 30 of Numbers 13. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. He says, what are you thinking? These are the promises of God. This is the moment of God. We are the people of God. And by the power of God, we ought to obey God. We should by all means do what the Lord said and lay possession to it. We will overcome. Makes a great declaration of faith before all of Israel. Verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people for they're too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are a part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So Caleb takes his stand and makes a declaration of faith. We have got to go in. This is God's will for us. Of course, it's intimidating. Of course, it's a challenge, but it's God's will. So we will have God's provision. Let's go for it. And they say, no, 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 it's too big, it's too gnarly, it's too scary. It's a land that just devours people when they go in there. And we're just like little tiny grasshoppers. They're getting irrational now. And you know, that happens in the life of even Christians when we get our eyes off of Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed? You get your eyes off of who Jesus is and you start to focus on the circumstances and the difficulties and all the challenges and all of a sudden your giants get real big and your Jesus gets real small. And then you get irrational and you say, we're just little grasshoppers. We could never possibly do it. And that's what's going on. And Caleb is not done. We pick up the words of Caleb in Numbers 14 now, verse 7. He says there, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them. For the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. This is glorious. What we see here is that Caleb continues in his stand for righteousness and faith and obedience to God in the midst of a people who were not with him. The majority report was contrary to what he was saying. And we know from the rest of the chapter that all of Israel won after the majority report. In fact, they said, you know what? Yeah, that's right. Let's kick Moses out. Let's get a new leader and let's kill Joshua and Caleb. 
That's what happens in verse 14. They try to do that. And Caleb maintains his stance of righteousness and faith and obedience before the Lord. And the first point of this sermon is this, that Caleb was dedicated under pressure. That's what makes him a great man of God and a life to be studied in Scripture. Caleb was dedicated under pressure, even when the whole world that he knew was against him. When everything that he saw was contrary to what others claimed to see, he still stood and determined to be obedient to the Lord. I have a quote here from Alan Redpath in his book, Victorious Christian Living, which is a commentary on the book of Joshua, and perhaps one of the best. And he says this, They had all seen what the majority had seen with this difference. The majority measured the giants against their own strength. But Caleb and Joshua measured the giants against God. The majority trembled. The two triumphed. The majority had great giants, but a little God. Caleb had a great God and little giants. That's glorious. And that has got to be the determination of every Christian in this world. Because this world is contrary to the kingdom of God, is it not? And if you're going to stand for Jesus Christ, you're going to have to go against the flow. If you're going to stand for Jesus Christ, his righteousness and his kingdom, if you're going to seek first his righteousness and his kingdom, you're going to find yourself contrary to popular opinion. You're going to find yourself going against the flow. And that is going to require on your part some resolve some dedication. And Caleb, this great man, was dedicated under pressure. It's easy to stand for Jesus in the easy times in the middle of the congregation on a Sunday morning and praise the Lord. But Monday morning is a different picture, isn't it? When we get to the workplace or the school or whatever it is, and we find, wow, everybody here is no longer for my God, nor are they necessarily for me. What are you going to do in that moment? Do you just go with the flow and just begin to blend into the world? That's so contrary to the teachings and the will of Jesus for you. Or do you stand and endeavor to be a little bit different by following Jesus, not just professing him, following him? When you do that, you're going to be different than the world. You're going to be salt and you're going to be light. And you're going to have to determine to be steadfast and immovable. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Be steadfast, immovable. Listen to me. By all measures, it doesn't matter how you measure, it doesn't matter what your eschatology looks like, we are living in the last days. And Scripture says that this world is going to become increasingly anti-Christ as we move toward the coming of the Lord. There's a popular teaching within the church that there's going to be a great last day's harvest. Now, I hope that there is, but there's no such teaching in Scripture. Scripture says in the last days, many will fall away from the faith. Jesus said that the love of many will wax cold in the last days, that many will pay attention to doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits, it says in 1 Timothy 4. The Bible doesn't speak of a great end times harvest contrary to popular Christian belief. I pray that there is one, and I labor for one. But I know that the calling upon my life in these last days is if I'm going to stand for Jesus, I need to be steadfast and immovable. I need to determine today that I am going to stay determined under pressure.
That when the world is contrary, I'm going to choose to stand for Jesus. Because this world is going to get ever increasingly contrary to the message of our Lord and the kingdom of God manifest on earth. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable. You know, the Lord will help you with that. And our weakness and strength is made perfect. We've not been left without help. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I'm tempted right now. Help me. He helps you. Lord, I'm scared right now. Help me. Lord, I'm intimidated by the opinions of people right now. Lord, I'm giving a lot of attention to the, the, the opinions of men and the whims of men and, and their desire for my life. Lord, help me to stand for you. He's always going to answer that prayer. He's always going to help you with power from on high, the person of the Holy Spirit. But I found that one way to practically every day keep myself in that place or in that mindset of being steadfast and immovable is in the next part of the verse where it says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. When I choose daily to serve Jesus Christ, I find that I'm just more solid for him in my walk. I find that I'm able to stand more firm against the schemes of the enemy and the wickedness of the world and the pitfalls of the flesh. When I determine I'm going to serve Jesus, why? Because determining to serve Jesus is the antithesis of serving yourself. And what is intuitive to humanity is to serve oneself, to look out for number one, to get what I need to get and to make sure that I'm covered and to have my own little agenda, my own little plans, and to begin to build my kingdom. We all do that. But for the Christian, there needs to come a time where we start to pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth in my life as it is in heaven. There needs to come a time where we surrender and say, okay, it's not about my kingdom anymore, God. It's not about my agenda. It's about you, Jesus, and what you want to do. So what do you want to do in my life? I want to abound in the work of the Lord. And you can do that wherever you are. I know that often when I speak of these things, you guys look at me and go, look, you get paid to do what you do. Okay, I get paid to dig ditches. I get paid to drive a bus. I get paid to watch kids, whatever it is. But listen, that's your ministry. That's where the Lord has you. If you would agree that this is where the Lord has me, then you've got to agree that that's where the Lord has you, or you're a hypocrite. Where you are is where God has you if you at all are endeavoring to obey him in your life. And so the simple call on the Christian is be faithful with what you have right now. To serve the Lord in that context now. To say on Monday morning, I want to serve you today, Lord. I'm not sure what it looks like other than to just be faithful to who you are and to what your word says. Just be faithful to who you are and what your word says. To not deny you when the conversation goes south. To not act like I don't know Jesus, like there's not a standard of righteousness in me. When somebody has questions, when somebody's hurting, when someone needs mercy, when somebody needs prayer, to not just turn away from that, but to engage in that for the kingdom of God. That's all it means. Sometimes we complicate it in our mind, and the enemy would love to make it complicated. But I'm here to tell you that God's will for you is to be a servant of him on Monday morning. Wherever God has you that day, in the home, at work, whatever it is, to just endeavor to be faithful to what he said and who he is. Last part of the verse, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That's good, right? If you endeavor to serve the Lord, your toil is not in vain. It's meaningful. It has lasting value. It has eternal value in it. 
Think about all the things that we do in our life and think about how much of that is temporal. Think about how much of that is even wood, hay, and stubble in the day that we'll stand before the Lord as Christians and be judged, not for punishment, but for reward according to how faithful we were with our position, our resources, and our abilities. Every one of us who is a Christian is going to stand before the Lord and have to give an account for how we labored for his kingdom with where he put us, what he gave us, and what we were able to do. And, and when you endeavor to do that, it's not in vain. I, 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 I shudder to think how many people spend their whole life in vain just laboring for their own kingdom. And when they're gone, man, it's gone. What? Can't take it with you. But when you serve the Lord... When you're steadfast, immovable, bounding in his work, life has incredible meaning. And if you choose to do that, you will have to choose to be dedicated under pressure. The more you want to serve Jesus, the more difficult it's going to get in this lifetime. There's a truth. You better deal with that. You want to go with the flow of this world? That's your gig. But if you want to put your hand to the plow and labor for the king, there's going to be some opposition. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Quote here from Alan Redpath about Caleb says, A faith that never wavered had enabled Caleb to lay hold of a strength that never weakened the very power of God himself. When the majority opinion was contrary to what was right, him standing in that faith, a faith that never wavered, allowed him to tap into a strength that never weakened the power of God himself. If you choose today to begin to stand for Jesus in your life, you will experience unending power in the person of the Holy Spirit. Verse 9. Caleb speaking. Wait, I'm sorry. Verse 9 of Joshua 14. Go back there. Excuse me for that. Go back to Joshua 14. We're back there now. Verse 9 now, we pick it up, Caleb speaking in Joshua 14. So Moses, he says to Joshua, swore on that day, telling me, surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. Very important phrase, we'll come back to it. Verse 10, and now behold, the Lord has let me live, Caleb says to Joshua, just as he spoke these 45 years. From the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, when Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I am 85 years old today. I don't know if it was Caleb's birthday, and he's 85 years old like today, or he means like today, now, in this time, I'm 85 years old. But either way, he is now 85. And he's talking about the promise that Moses made to him after he took a faithful stand according to spying out the land, that he would have a certain portion in the land of Canaan. And he's referring to a conversation that took place 45 years ago. And let me tell you, it's been 45 really hard years. Because 38 of those years were spent wandering in the wilderness with the rest of Israel, weren't they? And that was a difficult time. And then the last seven of those years have been spent in warfare. So 38 in the wilderness, 7 in warfare, 45 really long, hard years, and now he's 85. And the second point that we glean from the life of Caleb at this juncture is this. Caleb was dedicated under difficulty. Not only was he dedicated under pressure when the opinion of the world was against him, but he was dedicated under difficulty when circumstances were less than perfect. Perfect. 
You see, he endured 38 years of wandering in the wilderness, the judgment of God for a sin he didn't commit. He was righteous before God. He did the right thing. He did everything right, but he experienced everything wrong. He had to go with Israel into that judgment. He spent just as much time. It was just as dry, just as difficult. He did everything right and had to endure everything wrong. And you and I hear that and we say, that isn't fair. Right? We say that. Caleb never said that. We have no record of Caleb having that mindset whatsoever, of him ever thinking that way, reacting in that way, saying nothing. This isn't fair. Guess what? It wasn't fair. My son, Isaiah, he's six years old. And you know, when you're that age, you're obsessed with fairness to a certain degree. Because what the neighbor kid just got as a gift, you need the same thing or something of equal or greater value to compensate. You know what I mean? And so whatever happens with one of his friends or whatever, we often hear our son Isaiah say, it isn't fair. And as a six-year-old, you know, that's a reasonable thing to say. By the way, only kids are supposed to say that, adults. <laughs> and so my six-year-old comes and says, that isn't fair. And Kate and I, my wife and I, say this to him all the time. We take that as a teaching opportunity, and we impart this knowledge to him. We say, Isaiah, life isn't fair. <laughs> In all seriousness, we want him to learn life is not fair. Where do we ever get the idea that this lifetime would be fair? We live in a world that is fallen and contrary to God and in utter rebellion to our King Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble. What makes you think this life is going to be fair? He did say, take heart, I have overcome the world. Fair is not, there, is, there ain't no fair, man. I'm sorry to tell you that. It wasn't fair. It was life. And unfortunately for so many of us, that's the truth that we're living in right now. I know for so many of you here, circumstances are so gnarly and so difficult and so radical, and you're saying it isn't fair. And it isn't fair, but it is life. But we have an ever-present help in the time of need. His name is Jesus. We have help whenever we need it. We have an unending reservoir of strength. He is the Holy Ghost, the third person of the Trinity. We have in our time of need a kind of merciful Father, God the Father, who is high and exalted, seated in a lofty place, and yet near to the contrite in spirit. He's near to the brokenhearted. Life isn't fair. But Caleb never said that. He simply endured. You see, he was dedicated under difficulties. And he didn't get bitter. There's no record of him getting bitter. That's a toughie, right? Sometimes life beats you up so much you get bitter at people and at God. And that's a dangerous place to be because bitterness is really Satan's playground. You harbor bitterness in your heart and you're giving Satan access and opportunity to your life. I know, personal experience and the scriptures, Ephesians chapter 4. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, thereby giving the devil an opportunity in the Greek tapas, literal geographical location in your life. Caleb, who was dedicated under difficulties, didn't get bitter at God or the people. And though he had to walk for, for years, for decades, with the people that their rebellion brought them to this horrible place. And you know what? He had to watch them die because of their sin. He did everything right. He had to endure everything wrong. But we have this quote about him, again, from Alan Redpath. 
Amid the murmurings of the people, Caleb retained the fixed purpose to wholly follow the Lord. Never was he found among the grumblers or among those who were skeptical and unbelieving. Never was he found among the people who hankered again for the leeks and garlic of Egypt. Never was he found among those who disobeyed God or among those who turned to idolatry. Because he had caught a glimpse of the reward of obedience. And that was sufficient to keep him true for all the rest of his life. And until that brought him at last the place God had promised to him. He did all things without grumbling or complaining. It would have been so easy to get caught up in that, in that wilderness wandering, especially when he had done everything right. But what do the scriptures say to you and I in the New Testament? Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or complaining in order that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may have caused glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. And then Paul gives us this biographical detail. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with all of you. Paul was a guy who did just about everything right and experienced a whole lot of difficulty. And he also was determined under difficulty. In Paul's ministry, he was shipwrecked on three different occasions. I mean, three times? (laughs) Shipwrecked three times. A night and a day he spent in the deep. He was beat three times with the cat of nine tails. Jesus was scourged one time. Paul was scourged three times. He was beat five times with rods. Once the apostle Paul was stoned with rocks and left for dead. He had troubles from countrymen. He had troubles from the Gentiles. He had troubles troubles on the highway, troubles out in the country, troubles in the rivers. He had all sorts of difficulties. And beyond that, he had upon him the daily weight of responsibility for the churches. Man, and he did ministry for the Lord, and he did it right. And he had a whole lot of difficulty in his life. And at the end of his life, which is right here, he's not wanking about it. He's not grumbling. He's not complaining. He's not, woe is me. He's saying, hey, if I'm being poured out like an offering, if I'm being just wrung out like a sponge, and it's so that you, the church, can be built up, I rejoice in Jesus Christ. And so he's able to say with authority to the Philippians and to you and I, by the Spirit of God, do all things without grumbling or complaining. I know that this life is hard. And listen, I'm preaching to the choir right now. Would it help if I come down there and sit in a pew? I mean, I'm preaching to myself as well, okay? I'm I'm maybe the worst. Ask my wife and my mom. They'll tell you about it. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. When we do, we demonstrate ourselves to be the children of God, lights in the world amongst a crooked and perverse generation. Now, I want you to see verse 11 as we get to our final point. This verse is great. This is Caleb speaking. Look what he says. Joshua, I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. He's 85 years old. He's 85 years old. He ain't lying. He's standing before Joshua and saying, Joshua, I'm as strong today as I was when Moses was here. When he sent me in to spy out the land at 40, I'm as strong now at 85. And I don't think he was fronting. I think he had a life that was so dedicated to the Lord that in every fiber of his being, he felt strengthened by God himself. He was the second oldest man in all of Israel. In the wandering in the wilderness, everybody over 20 died out. Only Joshua and Caleb 
who were over 20 survived. And now Joshua's about 100, Caleb's 85. And he's saying, look, Josh, I'm nasty. I'm as nasty as I ever was. I love this guy. This guy's unbelievable. And then look in verse 12. Now then, give me this hill country. He says, Joshua, give me what Moses promised to me 45 years ago. I can handle it. Give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that the Anakim were there. Okay, that's the race of giants. The Nephilim are descended from them. With great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out as the Lord has spoken. He's 85. He's saying, give me the place where the giants live. Maybe God's going to let me drive them out. Give me the gnarliest job in all of Israel is what he's saying. Give me the most difficult situation. That's what I want. I love this old guy. Verse 13. So Joshua blessed him. What else are you going to do? Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, until this day. Look, because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, a big, fat, nasty giant. Then the land had rest for more. This is unbelievable. Caleb, according to our estimation, would have every right at this juncture in his life to just rest on his laurels. To just say, look, there's all these young whippersnappers around. I'm at least 20 years older than all these other guys. Let them go deal with the giants. Remember, they've broken the power structure of the land, but they now have to settle and possess the land and dispossess the people. And the area of Hebron, we have it up on the map for you here, the, the mountainous region just to the west of the Dead Sea there, that was an area that was a stronghold of the giants. Giants lived there, and they had big fortified cities. This was the very thing that terrified his brothers for 45 years earlier when they spied out the land. He says, I want to go back to that place and get the victory. I want to go back to that place where my brothers were so terrified so long ago. I want to go against those fortified cities and against those giants. The Lord's going to give it to me. Give me my inheritance. I love this guy. That there'd be more people in the body of Christ like this guy. He easily could have said, look, I went in and spied out the land and I came out and gave the right report. No one else did, Okay. I was in the right. I wandered in the wilderness for 38 years because of their sin. I didn't grumble and complain. I didn't fall into idolatry. And now at the age of 80, I have fought for seven years these wars with you, Joshua. So just give me a nice, easy spot on the Sea of Galilee with nobody around. That's what I would have done. That's why I'm not in the Bible. <laughs> but Caleb... Final point about Caleb, he was dedicated unto the end. He was dedicated under pressure, he was dedicated under difficulty, and he was dedicated unto the end. He didn't choose to rest on his laurels at this point. He didn't want to take it easy. Uh, here's a, a great uh, quote from a guy named Gangle. Even after 85 difficult years, Caleb had a great attitude about serving God and fighting for him. He wasn't tired out. In fact, he was just getting excited. He didn't walk up to his old friend Joshua to ask for a maintenance-free, energy-saving home, preferably one with a large porch for his favorite rocking chair. No, he asked for the hill country still inhabited by giants. He wanted the very area that had intimidated the other 10 spies. And the rest of the Israelites were probably glad to let him have it. 
get on with yourself. Old man, you go take that area. Fine, we're going to go over here. Listen, he didn't just accept the challenge. He pursued the challenge. He was as ready toward the end of his life to fight the battles to the glory of God as he was much earlier in his life. And this should always be true for the Christian. There's nothing in Scripture that says that Christians need to mellow in their zeal for the Lord with age. Correct me if I'm wrong, maybe some of you seasoned saints, but I haven't found it. That we should be less zealous for the Lord as we mature in years? That, 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 that we should be less of a warrior for the Lord? If anything, according to my understanding of Scripture and who God is, you ought to be the most zealous for the Lord. You ought to be the most on fire. You've known Jesus the longest. And let me tell you, this generation, the younger generation, we need to see an older generation that is sold out for Jesus Christ doing battle on behalf of the community. And we're so thankful for those of you that are. There's like three of you at reality. We're so thankful. <laughs> but you know, often the three that do come to reality, four, that do come to reality, you know, they come and say, oh, I love to see the young people's zeal and passion for the Lord. And that's great. But in my spirit, I turn around and I say, we need to see your zeal and passion for Jesus. We, we need to know that we'll still be doing this 40 years from now, should the Lord tarry, that we can still dance unto the king, that we can still lift our hands, that we can still shout, that we can still do battle in the prayer clause against the enemy and see victory for our community. We need you people to be dedicated unto the end. Together we can be like Caleb, dedicated under pressure, dedicated under difficulty, and we ought to be dedicated unto the very end. And here's a charge to a young man whose name was Timothy from an older man whose name was Paul in 2 Timothy 4. He says, Timothy, but you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. Paul was able to say that. Don't you want to say that at the end of your life with Jesus? I have fought the good fight. Listen, every one of us currently is fighting for something. That's the world in which we live. You're either fighting for your own comfort, your own well-being, your own possessions, or whatever it is, or you're fighting for the glory of God and the kingdom of Jesus Christ, but you're fighting for something. Is it the good fight? I, your friend, say to you today, I want to get to the end of my life and say, I have fought the good fight fight. I finished the course. I didn't bail out early. I didn't cheese out. I didn't wimp out. I endured hardship. I did the work of an evangelist. I fulfilled my ministry. I finished the course and I've kept the faith. Will you be able to say that at the end of your life? And then he finishes by saying, in verse 8 of 2 Timothy, Paul says, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Do you love the appearing of the Lord? That's speaking about his appearing to take the church home. I mean, are you longing for it? Do you love it? Do you know there's a crown of righteousness, a reward for those who love the coming of the Lord? That's why we talk about it here. That's why we sing about it. That's why we pray for it. We long for it because it's right. And when you're longing for Jesus to come, you're probably laboring for his kingdom now. But if you're building your own kingdom, you're probably really not that excited about Jesus coming because you've got some plans. <laughs> but when you're running hard for the Lord, your daily prayer is Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. And then the hope of every Christian 
is that on that day, we will hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what I want to hear. Well done, good and faithful slave. If I'm ever going to hear that, that means that I need to determine that I'm a slave now to Jesus. Make myself a slave to righteousness, his cause, his purposes. I need to be able to say, I'm just a lowly slave, Lord, doing what you told me to do. And perhaps someday I'll hear him say, well done. That's what I'm living for. Well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. Are you living for that moment? Is there anything you're doing in your life right now that if it were to end today would cause the Lord to say that to you? I hope there is. I hope in some way you're living for Jesus. Your vision is beyond your, your own world. You've caught the vision of the kingdom of God. You know that he's given you gifts, that he's got a calling on your life and a purpose on your life, and it's whatever context he has you, and you don't got to pick up and go anywhere. It's right where he has you. If you've caught that vision, then you've got a hope of hearing the Lord say that. If not, if you know, wow, I'm really, totally, honestly, just like living for myself. Today's a great day to repent. Today's a great day to get over yourself and get into the things of God. And in that, there's joy unspeakable and unending reward. And I just want to finish by saying this. Did you notice that three times in Joshua 14, it said that he followed the Lord, his God, fully? Some translations say he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. In the Hebrew, that word wholeheartedly was a sailing term. It was a nautical term that referred to a ship that pushed straight ahead no matter what happened. He was wholehearted for the Lord. No matter what happened, he pushed straight ahead. Forget what lies behind, press on toward the upward call of Christ Jesus is the New Testament phraseology from Paul in Philippians 3 wholehearted a ship that is pressing ahead, maintaining its course no matter what, to be dedicated under pressure, under difficulty, and unto the end. And the thing that's so cool about Caleb is that his name in Hebrew means all heart. I love it. You ought to name your kids that. His name was All Heart, and he served the Lord wholeheartedly. He was dedicated in pressure, difficulty, and unto the end. What a glorious example for you and I, amen? I'll tell you this right now. I'll be humble and honest and transparent before you. I need help. I've been preaching to the choir today. We're a lot like each other. We're just not enough like Jesus, are we? And we're just a little more cheesy than we want to be. And so I'm going to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon me today. Anybody want to join me in that? Stand up if you need that gig. Let's just lift our hands to the Lord in a gesture of receiving from our Father. And Lord, we just have this to say today, that you know us. You know our hearts. You know our comings and goings. You know the ins and outs, Lord. You know where we're being faithful with what you've entrusted to us, and you know where we're not, and you love us still. And we just pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to, yes, lovingly convict us and to begin to get us on the right path, but Lord, we can't do it without the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. So Father, give us the promise of the Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost, come upon us now. We need power for these things. We're so weak in and of ourselves, so unable, so inadequate. Thank you, Father, that in your sovereignty and your wisdom and your goodness, you ordain that we would have power from on high. And so we want it now. 
Holy Spirit, that you would come upon us for power to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. In Carpinteria and Summerlin, in La Conchita, in Montecito, in Ventura, in Santa Barbara, in Oxnard, in Goleta, in Camarillo, and to the uttermost parts of the end of the earth. Oh yeah, in Ojai, Lord. <laughs> we need power there too. We ask that you would empower us to stand for you. Lord, help us to surrender wherever we have not. We want our lives to be yours and wholly yours, wholehearted. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen.